From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been 40 years now, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15% off your subscription. That's Fangoria.com, promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15%. I'm Mick Garrison. This is the Fun Size Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything, and producer Joe is here to ask your questions of me. And you can send in your questions to us at PM on Twitter, at PM on Instagram, and at Joe Russo Tweets on Twitter, and we will try to get through as many of them as we can. And we've got some fun ones today. Oh, good. Fun is always oh, fun, good. Fun and, and interesting, I think. Well, too. here's hoping. So, so yeah. here we go. So Ian Clink writes, I found an old paperback copy of Hellbound Hearts, which included your story of Hellbound Hollywood, which was fascinating, its imagery and debauchery. I was wondering <laughs> if there was a neat story behind how this particular story came about, and how does an omnibus collection like this come together? Well, the editors are uh, a pair of British writers, um, Paul Kane and Marie O'Regan, who um, were friendly with Clive Barker and wanted to do a tribute to uh, the Hellraiser series of films and the original short story, A Hellbound Heart. So when I was asked if I would be a part of it, I jumped at the chance being friendly with Clive Barker and, and a huge fan of his work. And 
in my fiction, I've kind of carved out a bit of a subgenre of my own, which is Hollywood-based horror, mm -hmm. film industry horror stories. And this seemed like the perfect opportunity to put that to use. And so there's not a particularly interesting story behind it other than that, but it was just something that, you know, Clive is, is very much known for his lack of restraint when it comes to the grotesque, mm -hmm. sexual and otherwise, and that was kind of the jumping off point for me. And he was one of the reasons that my fiction uh, was a little more unleashed than some of my other work, um, where it was, uh, I, I realized that I was self-censoring a lot. And in fiction, there's not a bunch of studio executives and the like to tell you how you should address it and change it and how you have to. Um, and so uh, starting with uh, my short story, A Life in the Cinema, uh, I started writing fiction uh, that was fairly unbound and uh, a lot of it very Hollywood-oriented, and so this was a part of that collection. So Bat Raider 3960 writes... We're all horror fans, obviously. Obviously. But do you ever feel the need to step away from the genre for a lightening up? I find if I watch too many horror uh, films that I can feel run down emotionally. Curious if I'm alone here. Well, uh, you're certainly not alone. I, I feel the same way, but I also uh, don't only immerse myself in horror. Right. My career has been dedicated to that because I had some success early on within the genre. It creates a bit of a jail for you, if, sure. if you will. Now, I'm happy to be in this prison. Uh, it is a minimum security prison. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, But I love all kinds of books. I love all kinds of movies. Uh, I love all kinds of television, but I, I'm not just a consumer of the arts of popular culture. I like to travel. I like to get out and you know, right. hike every day and, and things like that. But, but I, you know, I, I love John Grisham. You know, I, I love courtroom thrillers. Yeah, no, uh, interesting. But um, and comedy, you know, yeah. satire. And I was and, just gonna say, like, after you watch a really dark horror movie, do you need a, a comedy to kind of wash the palate, well, cleanse? And... That's the thing. I don't need a cleanse after yeah. horror. I can take the darkest shit if it's good. Yeah. It doesn't bring me down. It brings me up. Yeah. You know, yeah. any anything really good. Uh, you know, there's there's a really dark little movie that I saw the other day called Freaks, not the Todd browning one mm, the new one it's, it's the new out. one yeah. that that i was really impressed with it's quite dark very original um and i went by myself and saw it in the theater rather than on vod and and i came out of it you know feeling great because i'd just seen something special yeah and and really dark i heard it gets very violent at the end it, it is but not in a rob <laughs> zombie sense sure, you know? sure, uh, sure. but but Anything like that. But I, I don't only consume horror. I consume lots of different kinds of popular culture and um, and other things outside of that as well. Personal experience, experiential sure. things as opposed to experiencing through an artist's viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. Well, in a similar uh, kind of position, Dark Tower Radio writes... Streaming services seem to have opened the door for the horror genre to really spread its wings. With so many different types of films and anthologies, do you think we are past the days of one subgenre dominating the horror genre 
like the way slashers did or zombies did. Do you think? I really hope so. Yeah. You know, I, you know, as much as I've loved zombies in the past, I think that um, I don't ever need to see another zombie movie. <laughs> and yeah, the you only say thing... that, and then all of a sudden, the Shaun of the Dead comes. Yeah, then the something like that will happen. Or, but let know. me just say, if if I never see another found footage zombie movie. <laughs> I don't feel my life will be harmed in any way. By Though that. I keep hearing the jump cut of the dead is supposed to be. I, I hear that's great yeah. too. Yeah. So there's always there's the an exception. There's exception, an exception to prove the rule. Yeah. So, um, but slashers. I never felt that slashers were the ne plus ultra of horror cinema right. in the first place. Right. You know, uh, they've never been the greatest example of screenwriting. Sure. Uh, but you know, they're effective. But they're probably the least original subgenre in the horror field, and that's saying something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all these streaming opportunities and and network and cable television have gotten into the dark matter quite a bit and quite successfully in a lot of cases. So I love that. And if you can surprise me or take me somewhere I've never been in the horror genre before, I am all for it. And I would love for all of these opportunities to to create that kind of world for us yeah i agree uh zombie killer how we go right since you often if not always incorporate popular music into your films does the music influence what you write or vice versa does it affect how you want to shoot a scene if a particular piece of music is in your head during its conception usually the piece of music goes in later, although often it's scripted. Like Riding the Bullet was set in 1969, so I used all songs from 1969. But When you wrote the script. When I wrote the screenplay, I wrote several of them in, and I, I got to use most of them. We were able to license them, like Time of the Season by the Zombies as yeah, our opening yeah. title music. But I had written in Instant Karma for the end. It's part of the subplot of Riding the Bullet is going to see John Lennon up in Toronto right. uh, in the hopes that there will be a Beatles reunion there. Well, that year, it, that John Lennon concert was recorded and the album had Instant Karma on it. So the last line of the movie is, nobody lives forever, but we all shine on. And we all shine on is the chorus of Instant Karma. Yeah. And that would have been perfect. Um, So that was something I definitely had in mind, but we didn't get the song. Yoko Ono had to give us approval, and she did, but we couldn't afford what they were asking for. Oh, man, that's, that's, yeah. (laughs) So we ended up using the Youngbloods Get Together, also from 1969, also sort of an elegy uh, that that worked just as well. Um, On the other hand, uh, in the Stand miniseries, the opening sequence with uh, the title sequence with Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult was written into the into the script. And we very much shot that. It was a silent sequence. And we shot that song. I even played the song while we were shooting. Oh, it, really? Just to give us the mood. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's not normally the case. Um, and for example, the, the scene where uh, Molly Ringwald's character is burying her father... Stephen King had written in the Beach Boys Fun, Fun, Fun as counterpoint to that. And I ended up using the Crowded House song, Don't Dream It's Over, to get more of the feeling. But it 
it wasn't written with Don't Dream It's Over in mind until I did come up with that idea before we shot the montage that takes place uh, in Ogunquit at the beach. And so that was something where the rhythms of that song were in mind when we shot that. But often the songs come in after the fact, especially these days. If you're going to use a well-known song, it costs a fortune. fortune. Yeah. And I haven't been able to use a well-known song for a while. In any <laughs> you really projects. you really have to be malleable on that point because it's just it's the, the process of approvals and then financial is just so daunting. It, it, it is uh, more so than ever before. And maybe it's a good thing. It is good for those musicians because it, songs can be an incredibly important part of it. Yeah, that yeah. Don't Fear the Reaper became a number one hit again after The Stand came out, right. a few years after it had been a hit song. And uh, Time of the Season you know, became popular again in, in commercials and things after writing The Bullet. So um, it's a good thing for people to have written these songs to be able to benefit from it. Sure. But I think the, the moral of the story is, you, as a filmmaker, you should almost you should be flexible and wait to see what you have in the edits and <laughs> or make sure you've 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 licensed it in advance and right. you can work with it. right right fair enough uh so kind of for our main topic today we've been getting a lot of questions in the past um about censorship with movies hmm. and i thought it'd be interesting to kind of dive into you know, how external influences can impact uh, horror movies um, and like censorship or, or just notorious creators, creators who go on to have some sort of a, a black mark. We, we were we talked about Rosemary's Baby right. a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, on Twitter afterwards, someone brought up the point like, does who Roman Polanski is now and what happened with him, does that change your perception of uh, something like Rosemary's Baby? Well, it's such a complicated question because you have to separate the art from the artist or you don't. Right. You know, Rosemary's Baby was made in 1968. Right. And it's a phenomenal film. Um, Roman Polanski may have probably did some reprehensible stuff. Um, It doesn't change what the movie is. But it can change your perception of it, especially if uh, you don't know it from 50 years ago, but you know of it now and through the notoriety of actions that he had committed some 40 years ago. Um, Nietzsche was a fascist, but he also wrote important literature. I don't know. I'm I'm queasy about that separation of art and artist because I do have strong moral... um, rules in my own life, you know, but I also think the censorship of work is heinous. Yeah. Um, you know, Harvey Weinstein, of course, did is there's no question that he did some pretty despicable things. But he also made some very good movies. But he allowed a lot of really great filmmakers to make some really great movies. So it's complicated. I would like to not patronize people who are scum Mm -hmm, (laughs) you know mm -hmm. uh and if i know that beforehand i'm certainly not going to put my money down to buy a ticket right but it's it's complicated and everybody has to take their own moral compass and i feel i have a pretty high uh moral standard that i i like to 
serve as an individual and as an artist as well. Um, I'm sure there are things from films I've done in the past that may not be perceived in the best light today. I can't think of any examples, thank goodness. Sure. And I hope that there's nothing to be embarrassed about with within those attitudes. But you can't change history either. Yeah. You can't change what uh, Gone with the Wind was all about. Um, uh, and, and attitudes that were held at a certain time. Right. You know, certain attitudes about LGBTQ, um, certainly, uh, a lot of comedy from the seventies, sixties and seventies. Definitely some cringeworthy things. Yeah. It makes me queasy and all. And, and, you know, if I laughed at it in the seventies, there's certainly guilt about that, but, it has to be taken in the perspective of the time. Now, yeah. if you're talking about criminal action, that's different. But it still doesn't change the movie. So I, I don't really have a definitive answer to that. And I don't think anybody can unless you're the most strident uh, of opinions. Yeah, I think, I think it's really hard if you had <laughs> a, a, an emotional response to a piece of art as strongly as, as maybe you did with you know, Rosemary's Baby. Hmm. You can't change that response just no. because the person who created it might have done something later. Yeah, you found I mean, there like, are you, actors You're in always movies. going to have that emotional response. You, yeah, you there are actors in movies who uh, we've learned have done some horrible things and the yeah. like, but it doesn't change the movie or the character they were playing or if it was a great performance and the like. And yet, you don't want to patronize right. um, work that... Uh, could be foul, yeah, yeah, <laughs> or fouled by its historical position. On on the other end of the spectrum, <laughs> moving away from maybe the person and focusing more on the content, yeah. there was an issue pretty recently with a, a Blumhouse movie that should have come out in the next couple of days, actually called The Hunt. Oh right, uh, right, and it became the target of Fox News and Donald Trump's ire. Yeah, uh, to the point where the movie's not going to be released anytime soon maybe never at all um well that's just somebody playing for a political base yeah and and using it as a football i that's the kind of censorship that is not founded on somebody doing a despicable act right it's about representing something that is in our society and taking off from that to tell a story and that is censorship that is not moral censorship right that is using it as a political football much like the right would use abortion to mm-hmm. get people to come into the polls and vote by taking a stance in whether it's anti-abortion and bring them out and and it's it's just a game it's just a trick and it's yeah. just ugly yeah. and nasty it is not not rooted in any kind of moral code it's rooted in pitting us versus them. Yeah, and it's disappointing, too, because it's not like this was some new idea that's never been seen before. It was an adaptation of Most Dangerous Game modernized with, you know, politics. Right. R- recent politics. Which and, I and, think is valid. I haven't seen the movie. I don't know if it's Right, good, we, neither of us have seen it, yeah. But, uh, um, but, you know, that Most Dangerous Game is a classic story, right. and it's been told several times on film, and it's a valid one, and it has socially conscious content to it that drives it and it did in its earliest days you know it was originally directed by Ernest Schoedsack who did um, King Kong Mm -hmm. and 
it was a potent movie in the 30s and, and an important one. But um, again, I don't know what its point of view is, but to try and turn that into uh, justifying a jackbooted response from from a right wing White House is just insane. Yeah, I'm 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 actually very disappointed that they kind of bowed down to that. Like I I yeah. you know people were like, well, but but they were threatening. You know, a lot of the right wing crazies were threatening to like go to the theaters and you know bring guns to the theaters to to you know threaten people who try to see the movie. And and I was like, I get that, but I think back to when Sony was hacked. And they oh. had that movie, The Interview, yeah, yeah. and they didn't want to put the movie in the theaters because they were worried about similar things. But I thought what Sony did, which was so brave and what I wish Universal had done. Sell it is, to Netflix. Well, not, not even, but, yeah. but just put it on video on demand, you know, let, yeah. let the consumer consume it in their own home. You know, yep. uh, well, that's that's certainly one way yeah. to do it. Yeah. Um, and maybe that'll be the fate of the movie at some point. But uh, yeah, well, with The Interview, it was a pretty expensive movie to put out that way. But, yeah. But, yeah. But it uh, did really well and yeah. actually <laughs> off of the the political shenanigans it, i think it only gave it even more of a marketing boost than it might have even had in the yeah theater. people wouldn't have known anything about it otherwise yeah. i mean it was a satire of north korea yeah. of all things. so so anyway well so that's censorship we fixed censorship all right uh, yes well we've at least commented on it well thank you mick uh for another great ama all right and thank you send your questions to us uh on twitter at mick garris pm on Instagram at Mick Garris PM and on Twitter to Joe Russo tweets. And we will answer some more and hopefully provide some wisdom. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>